Welcome to episode six of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast called The Science of Self-Compassion. I'm your host, Fiona Willer, weight-neutral professional development dietitian, academic and size acceptance advocate. So our learning goals for today are, firstly, to recognise the operational constructs of self-compassion as defined by Krista Neff to appreciate the health factors and outcomes associated with self-compassion and identify strategies which have been shown to induce self-compassion in experimental studies. Okay, so in order to talk about self-compassion, we have to start with compassion as a construct. So compassion is a response to pain or negative circumstances that somebody's going through. Google says that the definition of compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. And the key point here is suffering and pain. Without suffering and pain, there's no need for compassion. So we don't feel compassionate about somebody feeling joy, for example. Without pain, there is no need for compassion. So the whole point of compassion is that it's this response to physical, emotional or circumstantial pain and suffering. And it's not pity. Pity is quite different. Um, although some people who feel pity for others feel like they're feeling compassion towards others. But the key element is that while pity has a sort of a contemptuousness and othering with it. Um, so it's clear when you think about something being pitiful, that's not what is meant by compassion. Compassion places you in the shoes of that person as equals. So self-compassion is the same thing, uh, but turned inwards towards ourselves and our pain um, is the target uh, instead of outwards toward, towards others and their pain. So again, think of the difference between self-pity and self-compassion to try to get closer to this concept of compassion. In appraising the literature, it's clear that thinking about self-compassion as a means to, or in fact the active ingredient in resilience, has utility. For example, being on the receiving end of weight stigma or discrimination is painful, exceedingly painful, sometimes physically painful. Um, and coping with that pain is in a self-compassionate way is much more adaptive than internalizing those negative experiences by devaluing yourself. Self-compassion offers a tool to respond to that pain. Self-compassion, you know, why am I talking about self-compassion? So self-compassion in my non-diet approach model uh, which is a, a weight neutral approach to uh, clinical care essentially in the non-diet approach model, self-compassion is central. It's in the middle of the principles and it bleeds out into all of the practice principles. And the reason that it does that is that each of the practice principles should be delivered in a uh, way that enhances people's self-compassion skill. So that's why I want to talk about it today, because it's really central to the other parts. Firstly, though, I'm going to talk about compassion fatigue. And this is a concept that many of you will be familiar with. Um, it happens for health professionals typically um, and typically people who are exposed to secondary trauma so that's when you have to hear about somebody else's trauma continually or lots of other people's uh, trauma and you take on part of that pain yourself so that is the main reason for compassion fatigue so particularly people like therapists and nurses are uh, particularly prone to compassion fatigue, but really it's anyone who is exposed to this secondary um, trauma. And symptoms of compassion fatigue include 
uh, a feeling of a loss of purpose, um, anxiety, sleep disturbance, hypervigilance, pervasive hopelessness, self-doubt, inability to concentrate, disorientation or forgetfulness, withdrawal or isolation, apathy, anger, feeling like you're on an emotional roller coaster, decreased sexual intimacy, feeling overwhelmed, poor self-care practices, um, and appetite changes and also minimization. So there's a lot of really um, life impacting things that can happen with compassion fatigue. And self-compassion is a way to uh, build resilience for compassion fatigue and also a way to help soothe compassion fatigue that you might be having. So compassion fatigue in health professionals particularly uh, impacts on somebody's ability to do their job effectively. And of course, that then impacts potentially on our clients or patients' um, outcomes. And we don't want us to get in the way of their growth. So it re- compassion fatigue reduces attention and concentration. It detracts from decision-making skills, diminishes effective communication, really puts a barrier into that therapeutic relationship with our clients uh, and our patients and contributes to the health professional's own health problems. Um, people who have compassion fatigue also tend to be more critical of patients and tend to have poorer patient outcomes. So we're sort of project um, self-judgment and uh, project sort of negative um, judgment onto our clients. So that's not great. We need um, to be aware of our uh, compassion fatigue if it's there and try to um, make ourselves resilient in the face of it. And self-compassion as a skill is a really good way to build up that protective um, element against uh, compassion fatigue in ourselves. So we know that self-compassion is a skill that you can develop. So that is important because you need to recognize that it's not just something that's innately built into us or not built into it. It's something that can be learned. Um, Certainly kids that grow up in a compassionate environment tend to have high levels of compassion and self-compassion as adults. Uh, However, you can develop it as an adult as well. And why would we use self-compassion and not wine (laughs) to deal with the hard stuff in life? Um, One of the most consistent research findings is this link between greater self-compassion and less psychopathy, so less um, negative uh, psychological patterning and psychological outcomes. So um, Macbeth and Gumley in 2012 found a large effect size when comparing the link between self-compassion and depression, anxiety and stress, and that was across 20 studies. So it it is a phenomenon that is consistent across multiple studies, which means that it's most likely to be a real real thing. Uh, Self-compassion has been shown to improve interpersonal functioning um, and it's also linked to traits such as more uh, empathic concern, altruism, perspective taking and forgiveness of others. Self-compassion is a it's a good thing. It can help us more than wine can help us. In terms of self-compassion and healthy behaviours, People with high levels of self-compassion tend to have more realistic and intrinsically motivated exercise goals. That's actually what we want in weight neutral uh, lifestyle approaches is people doing the things because they really find personal value in them for their own sake rather than for some sort of um, long term goals or intrinsically motivated, for example, feeling like. Um, after you exercise or while you're exercising that you really feel really good in your body and your body feels strong and vital and so forth. We know that people with high self-compassion are more likely to seek medical care quickly, uh, that it reduces negative affective states and improves positive affective states. 
Uh, it is helpful in smoking reduction, smoking behavior reduction, um, also helpful to reduce alcohol misuse as well. And we find that people with HIV AIDS uh, conduct themselves with less risky sexual behavior uh, with if they have high self levels of self-compassion and it's associated with a proactive attitude towards health health uh, benevolent self-talk and motivation towards self-kindness when we look at the slice of self-compassion in terms of research on eating behavior and disordered eating, the message is also good. The findings are good. So people tend to have a less negative reaction to a diet breaking scenario in restrained eaters if they have high levels of self-compassion. Fewer binge eating symptoms, decreased social physique anxiety, so basically uh, improved uh, body dissatisfaction, fewer body image concerns after controlling for self-esteem. So it's a separate concept from self-esteem. Lower self-compassion is associated with higher eating disorder pathology in eating disorder patients and an improvement in shape and weight concerns as well. And Geller thinks that high self-compassion moderates that relationship between distress and distorted eating. So if we think about disordered eating as a, uh, a reaction to stress, stressful circumstances, um, Geller makes a case quite uh, convincingly that self-compassion can wiggle itself in there and be the buffer between this um, distress and be the thing that helps to cope with the distress rather than disordered eating being the coping mechanism. High self-compassion itself is independently associated with low disordered eating behaviours, which is why it's so beautiful for the non-diet approach. Okay, so self-compassion as a thing. It was operationalised by Kristen Neff in 2003. So self-compassion obviously is a concept been around for a long time. But when we want to use this stuff in academic work, we need to know what it is and we need to be able to test it <laughs> along its different sort of constructs to be able to sort of feel the edges of it, know what's inside it and really understand it from the inside out. It's really the point of academia is to sort of understand human phenomenon. So Kristen Neff back in 2003, after doing work in this field for a while, uh, developed the self-compassion scale. And so it was published in 2003 and it offers a global self-compassion score where uh, you can interpret that uh, in low self-compassion, moderate self-compassion and high self-compassion. And she's used population norms in order to assess um, that uh, spectrum, basically. I would suggest that you do the self-compassion scale. There's a link to an online version of the scale in your supplementary material. So do the score. You can see what your score is. But I'm going to go through the three main constructs in self-compassion uh, and also use the self-compassion scale and its subscales as a way to uh, explore these concepts with you today. So self-compassion, as conceived and as uh, researched by Kristen Neff, has three main constructs, and they are kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. And from those three concepts, all the other uh, bits fit. So if we start with kindness, her definition for kindness is responding to difficult times or difficult emotional states with a spirit of kindness, warmth and love, seeking to understand the situation rather than judging it harshly. And one example of how that can be expressed is something like, I am more than this experience and have great many things to offer. I did my best. 
common humanity, the next construct, her, rec- her uh, definition is recognising that pain and imperfection are a part of the human experience, a normal part of being alive, and seeking to connect to that sense of, a, of the larger human experience when times are tough, rather than feeling isolated and alone in your pain. And one way that that can be expressed is feeling this way is really common. Everybody has probably felt this way at some point. And the final one is mindfulness. Now, I could do a whole podcast on mindfulness at some point, and I may well do. <laughs> but in terms of mindfulness as it sits in self compassion, Kristen Neff is using the metacognitive awareness portion of mindfulness. And so her definition is observing the internal landscape of thoughts and feelings without becoming overly involved in them. And one way that that can be expressed is I'm feeling frustrated and sad rather than. Uh, I am frustrated and sad. So essentially that metacognitive awareness part of mindfulness, the important bit for our work today, is that you have thoughts and feelings, but you are not your thoughts and feelings. So if you can notice that you are having a feeling or having a thought about something particular, that means that you, your you-ness is actually behind that, able to listen and feel, but not be enmeshed and feel like you're uh, the same as those things. So putting that little bit of wedge of distance in between what you're thinking and what you're feeling uh, can help to identify them as transient parts of your life. You know, if you believe that you are the sadness that you're feeling, it's very difficult to start to feel like you might not feel that way (laughs) anymore or at some point. But we all know that, you know, things do pass. Incredible pain, even if it doesn't go completely in your life, will change its flavor as you were over time. So, uh, you know, recognizing that we maybe we think things and feel things that feel dreadful, but that those things may not last and that we are not those feelings themselves. There's a bit of distance in there. Some people think that self-compassion sounds too much like uh, people giving themselves an out, you know, that it's um, maybe a lazy way to accept things. Um, Some people that they fear that people not having that judgmental voice will lead to laziness and less self-care. We do know that self-judgment itself can be motivating just in the short term, but, uh, but that motivation is really usually driven by fear. So if we go to the self-compassion scale as a means to decode self-compassion. So I've talked about self-kindness, common humanity and mindfulness. And you can think about those three constructs as all being uh, yeah, components of self-compassion. In the self-compassion scale, uh, there are also their opposing sentiments. So in terms of self-criticism, we've got three um constructs which oppose our three self-compassion constructs and they are self-judgment which is the opposite of self-kindness isolation which is the opposite of common humanity and over-identification which is the opposite of mindfulness we know that when we look at those constructs separately so um, sort of using the self-compassion scale having six subscales rather than the three continuums we know that the positive elements are related to protection from psychopathy and the negative act, uh, aspects 
or predict psychopathy. So they're you know they're, they're actually legitimately separate uh, in their own right, those six constructs. But when we use the self-compassion scale and use the subscales as they're um, designed, we end up with scores for three for three things. But it's important to know you know like uh, self-kindness, is not just the absence of self-judgment. Self-judgment is another thing, although it's along the same continuum, for example. So the self-compassion scale's got 26 items. It's suitable for people aged 14 years and over who have an at least an eighth grade level of reading skill. And if you're using this in research and you think that 26 questions is a little too many, there is a short form which only has 12, um, but it's only the total score for that which is um, valid. You can't really do much with the subscales in the short form. So I would use, and I have used the long scale, um, long form scale in my research. I found uh, coincidentally that uh, dietitians who have high levels of affinity, of affinity to the non-diet approach and weight neutral approaches had high self-compassion when compared with dietitians who preferred to work in a weight loss counselling um, mode uh, who tended to have medium self-compassion so that was quite interesting I mean it was very like the relationship was quite linear which is beautiful to see when you do um, research it's a really uh, it's a eureka moment um, but yeah so I mean I think self-compassion is very important which is why I like to talk about it so if we go through those six uh, components now and I'm going to start with a negative bit <laughs> uh, and then talk about the positive bit as well so that we sort of unpack it um, because the positive parts are really there to deal with the negative parts. So if we start with self-judgment, this is your inner critic. This is the not good enough story. This is the attacking and berating inner voice that most of us have. Um, and it always talks about self-blame and self-shame for things that have happened. It could be something like I'm such a loser. And the self-judgment talk in the context of weight stigma is really the voice that is going to be saying the internalized weight stigmatizing things to that person. So I disapprove of my body shape. I disapprove of my weight. Why am I like this? This is so terrible. That sort of voice. So it's that self-judgment voice that is actually the voice of internalized weight bias and weight stigma. What we use as a salve for self-judgment is self-kindness. So remember that's responding to difficult times or difficult emotional states with a spirit of kindness, warmth and love and seeking to understand the situation rather than judging it harshly. So this is the tendency to be caring and understanding with oneself. Self-kindness reduces that self-criticism, self-condemnation, blaming and rumination, which are common notions of depression as well. And it enables a person to see their own reality and perceive their abilities and flaws with understanding and empathy. So that being kind and supportive to yourself and the ability to accept imperfection in your life. So one way that this can be expressed, remember that self-judgment statement was something like, I'm such a loser. A self-kindness statement to counter that is, I am more than that experience and than this experience and have many great things to offer. I did my best. Self-kindness, that voice is really the sort of thing that you say to a friend who is experiencing emotional, physical or circumstantial pain. What would you say to them? So that is the, usually we're much kinder to others than we are to ourselves. And it's a opportunity to pause and offer comfort and soothing to oneself before addressing the problem. The main intervention that helps to increase self-kindness um, that is sort of readily 
um, accessible to most people is using a self-kindness meditation. There are lots of uh, recordings on YouTube. You can send people away to do or you can do yourself. Listen to it first, certainly before you recommend it to anyone, just to make sure that there's no weight or body stuff in there, except if it's body acceptance stuff. Then we go to the next subscale. So this is the common humanity versus isolation concept. We'll start with isolation. Um, so that's feeling singled out, singled out and withdrawing into the pain. So seeing oneself as the only individual experiencing certain problems or emotions. Now this particularly happens to people who have a uh, identity which is stigmatized um, because we tend to see those identities as not ones that rally together to form a sort of strength in identity. That sense of isolation and it's particularly enhanced for people living in larger bodies particularly during adolescence because of the element of self-blame for one's own body shape, even though, I mean, that's not actually true, but that is the, the cultural belief. And so isolation and withdrawing into oneself and believing that, you know, everyone else is finding it easy or seems to, why is it me? Why, is it, why can't I get my act together and um, be thinner, for example? Um, you know, it, it's a very isolating uh, experience. A person who has high levels of isolation may feel as if others will not be able to understand how or what they're feeling and that they're the only ones feeling as they are. You feel really alone in your pain. So the sort of statement that comes along with that is something like no one knows how this feels. And I have heard that come out of people's mouths all the time. I remember it coming out of my own mouth <laughs> at times during my life. It's a really common sentiment. However, the salve for uh, isolation is common humanity. We know Failure and suffering are shared by all people. Obviously, some people have it harder than others, but that sense of pain, like the way that we actually feel it, is a human thing. Pain, the way that I think about it, is really there as a flag for um, evidence that you have loved something or cared for something. That experience is one that is common to almost every single human on the planet. You, know, you cannot be on earth for very long before recognizing that pain is actually part of the deal. Connection with others, so important. Even if you just recognize that it is a feeling of being connected with others can reduce your feelings of isolation. So a way that you can express that in a phrase, uh, remembering that the, our isolation phrase was no one knows how this feels, is feeling this way is really common. Everybody has probably felt this way at some point. And our last uh, concept, we've got mindfulness at one end and over-identification at the other end. So over-identification is rumination on disliked aspects of oneself or one's life. So really getting caught up in those negative thoughts around it, carried away by that negative storyline that's driving the suffering. It narrows focus and exaggerates implications for self-worth. Now, this is important, again, for weight stigma work because this is the... Um, concept that the internalized weight stigma voice that self-judgment voice is focused on this hyper focus on those sorts of um, phrases and thoughts and emotions that you're having over identification then is the opposite of mindfulness so remember mindfulness is about putting distance between you and your emotions recognizing that you yourself are different separate from the thoughts and emotions that you have over identification is when you're really fused to your emotions Anyone who's done any acceptance and commitment therapy training will be seeing this um, 
very clearly in terms of a requirement for defusion, as it's called in, in ACT. So over-identification, as I said, is opposite to mindfulness. Endorsing large degrees of over-identification may indicate that a person overly fixates on their flaws and has a difficult time objectively identifying feelings and thoughts because of it. You cannot see the wood for the trees. Sort of like classic catastrophizing. And then if we move to mindfulness, again, as I said, it's the observing the internal landscape of thoughts and feelings without becoming overly involved in them. Mindfulness has these two main elements. So paying attention to one's present moment experience as it's happening and relating to this experience with a curious, open and accepting stance. So it counters over-identification, reducing excessive fixations on negative thoughts. So you're sort of mindfully aware of your own suffering and that helps you to sit with it calmly rather than getting all stuck up in it. In mindfulness, we recognize a negative thought and are curious about why it's there. And we sit with it patiently and sort of feel its shape and um, smell it and sort of try with curiosity to see what its purpose is and whether we have any utility for it. And a phrase that we can use that would express mindfulness as opposed to over-identification is, I am feeling frustrated and sad. It's a way of expressing that you recognize that you are not your thoughts and feelings. We know that self-compassion interventions are effective at improving self-compassion. So that's important, as I said before. Um, And it is something that we should be working on with our clients or the people around us, as well as for ourselves. It's a practice that makes us personally more resilient, as well as helping our clients become more resilient. There are some activities to improve your self-compassion in the supporting materials, and I suggest that you do that. Take some time to do it. You could also do a Google Scholar search and have a look for self-compassion induction activities. So they're all uh, described in the literature. Of course, again, no, you know, no amount of self-compassion is going to be able to stop the systemic um, discrimination and um, oppression that is uh, apparent when looking at the way that larger people are treated in this world. So it's not going to, it's not going to fix that, but it is a way of helping people to cope with um, the consequences of that current um, situation that they experience. So to, to finish up, some useful phrases if you are a clinician, mention or observe self-criticism or harsh judgment by saying something like, it sounds like you're beating yourself up about this. What would you say to someone you love who is going through what you're going through? What would you say to them? Just try to sort of elicit that self-kindness reaction because we can all do that too. It's just that we're more used to being self-judgmental. Something like, imagine all the other people out there who are struggling with this too. I've heard this many times before. You're not alone. You know, so as a clinician, as the health professional uh, there to help the person through this stuff, you can express all of the elements of self-compassion to your client, express and draw out of them that self-kindness voice, express and help them realize that they their pain connects them with others rather than separates them from others and help the client to pull back and mindfully observe their thoughts and feelings. What's going on for you right now? So that's it for this episode. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed it. There's obviously a lot more to self-compassion and I've got links in the supporting materials for you to delve in deeper to this stuff as well. And I will be revisiting it as I talk about the non-diet approach as well a bit later on. 
Um, the supporting materials, which include the show notes, research links and self-test quiz are available upfront to current subscribers, only $5 a month, total bargain, or can be purchased in a bundle if you're catching up later. You need to see unpackingweightscience.com for details for that. And next time is weight neutral health enhancing habits, which will look at behaviours associated with longevity, delay and avoidance of disease, as well as behaviours which enhance health outcomes at any weight and any health status. And I'll talk about key research papers, um, as well as strategies for how to use them in your work for in clinic or in advocacy work. So until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 